but they share everything they have. With the great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the cells, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thank you, uh, Philip, very much indeed. Uh, warm welcome to Jeremy and Lyndon. It's lovely to have you with us this morning. Jeremy and Lyndon were with us here for a number of years before they moved out of Cape Town. It's great to have you with us this morning. And then during the week, I uh, was in contact with Amiao up in Ghana, and Amiao and Sarah have now had a little baby boy whose name is Asempa, and I'm reliably informed that that means gospel. And uh, on the strength of that, Amiao has postponed going to Wales, where he was going to be studying for a master's, uh, to stay behind and do daddy duty. What an excellent example. Let's have our Bibles open at uh, Acts chapter 4, and uh, I'll lead us in a word of prayer. Ancient words ever true, changing me, changing you. We have come with open hearts. Oh, let the ancient words impart. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ancient words before us this morning that have preserved for us the experience of the early church. We come to these words with open hearts and pray that as we explore them together that you would change us more and more into the likeness of the Lord Jesus. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. Well, in recent weeks we've been following Luke's account of the early church. Large numbers of people um, are being transformed by Christ, and the gospel is spreading like wildfire. And uh, in the section we're looking at this morning, uh, Luke is inviting us to look through two particular windows into the life of this very remarkable community. The first window uh, lets us overhear the praying of the early church, and the second window shows us the sharing of the early church. Of course, praying and sharing are two distinctively Christian disciplines, and uh, the reason for that is because they are expressions of the two greatest commandments. 
Uh, Jesus, you remember, said that the greatest commandments are love for God, love for neighbour, and praying is an expression of love for God, and sharing is an expression of love for neighbour. And it does seem to me that uh, these are two things that set the church apart from the world. The world is hostile to God. It rejects the claims of Jesus Christ, so it doesn't pray. And the inequality in our world is the result of selfishness and greed that, with a few notable exceptions, ignores the needs of neighbour. And, of course, we know all about this, don't we? Because, in economic terms, South Africa is one of the most unequal societies in the world. And I think, in light of that, it's rather surprising that, uh, at the last census, over 80% of the population in this country claim the name of Jesus Christ. Those two things don't seem to me to belong together. By contrast, when we see the early church honour God and care for neighbour, what we're seeing is a community that has been supernaturally transformed. This is something that God has done. And the result is the opposite of the ways of the world. It's also, I think, important for us to see that both these things came at a cost. Uh, When the early church prayed that the word of God would go out, it led to suffering. It was costly. And obviously when they shared their possessions to help those in need, it was costly. So think about it, you know, while the world's priority is to be safe and secure and put me first, here's a community transformed by God that does exactly the opposite. We're going to look at the passage this morning under just two headings. First of all, the conviction of the early church that Christ should be honoured. And second, the concern of the early church that Christ's people should be cared for. We're going to spend most of our time this morning on the first of those two points because we're going to be focusing much more on the second point next Sunday morning, but I will touch on it towards the end of the message. So first of all, Acts 4, 23 to 31, the conviction of the early church that Christ should be honoured. Now, regulars uh, by now are familiar with the context. Uh, A crippled man, you remember, has been healed by the risen Christ, and the apostles have used that particular miracle as a platform to preach about Jesus. Now, uh, they're being threatened by the authorities, so just glance back, will you, to verse 21. In verse 21, we're told, after further threats, the authorities let them go, the apostles, that is. The authorities could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. Now, what do you do if you've just been threatened by the authorities not to say anything anymore 
about Jesus. Remember, these authorities have just successfully put the Lord Jesus to death. Not hard to imagine that if they put their minds to it, they could dispose of the apostles as well. So where do these persecuted believers go for help? Uh, Should they plead their case before the Romans, perhaps? Uh, Should they appeal to the crowds? Should they go to the new Christians? I mean, that would have been interesting. There were 5,000 of them. Well, in verse 24, the answer is that they do none of those things. They go straight to the sovereign God. It's one of the great privileges, isn't it, I think, of being a Christian. You know, whatever you're going through, however hectic the opposition might be, you have the privilege of going to the one who, as the Bible says, is above all earthly powers. You can pray and get direct access to the one who rules the cosmos. So that's what they do. Uh, When the fellowship that Peter and John belonged to heard of the threats coming from the authorities, they raised their voices in prayer to God, and it's interesting to note that in the original, it says, they raised their voice, singular, with one mind. Remember that these were ordinary believers. Uh, This wasn't just the apostles praying. These were ordinary Christians. And as these ordinary believers prayed, I want you to notice three things. I want you to notice what their view of God was. I want you to notice what their request of God was. And I want you to notice what their experience of God was. Their view, their request, their experience. So first, what was their view of God? Interesting this, that five of the seven verses in this section are all to do with who God is. Now, have you ever done that? Have you ever said, yeah, I'm now going to go and pray and I'm going to give five-sevenths of the time to describing the God I'm speaking to? Have you ever done that? And I ask that question because, you see, it is their grasp of who God is that gives wings to their prayer. So they begin by praying to the, you'll notice this, the sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You see, once you grasp that view of God, that he's made the heavens and the earth and the sea, everything in them, you realize, don't you, that he's never going to be threatened by anything in creation. Uh, If God made even the opposition, these hostile authorities, well, he's not going to be outmaneuvered by them, is he? Or he's not going to be threatened by them. And then in verses 25 and 26, they say, you not only made everything, but you have spoken You've given us your word. Verse 25. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, 
our father David. And they quote Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? I wonder if you can see what they're doing here. They're quoting from a psalm which is asking the question, what on earth is the point of opposing God? Why do the nations rage against him? Why do they plot in vain? Why do they rage against the Lord and his anointed one when the Lord has already put his anointed king on the throne? What a waste of time. How foolish. So the early church picks up Psalm 2, which they now realize is all about the Lord Jesus, who's been with them, but who was crucified and has been raised. And they quote from this psalm, to encourage themselves with the knowledge that all opposition to the Lord Jesus is ultimately doomed to fail. The one they tried to destroy, he's already been raised. He's on the throne. So the opposition failed. And then thirdly, in verse 27, they pray. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. In other words, God, you predicted the conspiracy of these powerful people against Jesus a thousand years before it happened. More than that, you actually determined and you willed things to happen this way. So not only does God create the opposition, he writes the script for the opposition, and he tells the opposition when to walk onto the stage. Can you see these early Christians have a very high view of God? They know who God is. And this is the God they pray to. And I think it reminds us this morning, friends, that every single Christian is a theologian. Do you think of yourself like that? Please don't think that theology is the preserve of students at George Whitfield College. If you are a Christian, you are a theologian. That means you have a view of God. And therefore, the question you need to be asking is, is my theology true or false? Is it a theology I've made up that's convenient for me, or is it based on Scripture? Is it based on the eyewitness testimony of the apostles to the Lord Jesus? And the more you know about what the Bible says about God, the more that you will find yourself praying in a way that is full of confidence in him which is what the early church does here. And I think it makes their particular prayer request extremely interesting. And I do want us to think about this together because you might expect them to pray, Lord, look, you made the opposition, so please get rid of them. Uh, You predicted what the opposition would do. Well, please predict that they'll back down. But they don't pray like that. Their request is totally different. Look at verses 29 and 30. 
Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, that is an extremely appropriate prayer because there's no point whatsoever in praying that God would remove all opposition. Because, you see, it is the nature of the nations to rage against God and to carry on doing it until the Lord Jesus returns. And so instead, they pray that they would speak God's word with great boldness. Why? Why do they pray that? Well, because they know that God's word has got supernatural power to change individuals. So, friends, I do hope that in your own praying, you don't pray that God would simply make the world nice. Yes, it is good for us to pray that God would bring peace. It's good for us to pray that God would overturn injustice. But as we saw last week, we don't want the world to be simply nice but godless, safe but godless, united but godless. We don't want that. If you think of the world rather like a door that has kind of come off its hinges, we don't want to be praying that the door's going to be painted a nice pretty colour. No, we want the door back on its hinges because the world is never going to be truly safe until it relates to God, whose anointed one is seated on the throne. That's when the world will be safe. That's when the world will be secure. That's when the world will enjoy lasting peace. Not until. So, uh, that's what these early believers are praying. They remember that when Jesus prayed, he didn't ask God to remove evil. He asked God to save people. And I think perhaps we Christians can sometimes be a bit naive about this, uh, as if our goal is simply that the world might be calm and peaceful. But it can't be. It can't be. Because the world has risen up against God. And that's why God divided the world. Read about that in Genesis chapter 11 and the story of the Tower of Babel. Do you remember how God divided the world, didn't he? By confusing languages. Because God didn't want the world, and he doesn't want the world to be united but godless. That would be a catastrophe. The greatest need in the world is for people to be reconciled to God. So in all the mess and all the misery and all the muddle, we need to keep praying that the gospel would go forward because that is how individuals get transformed. So, the early church, uh, in the face of opposition, prayed that they would have boldness to speak the word. Uh, they wanted to get the gospel out so that the enemies of God would be reconciled to God by kissing the Son. That's the appeal at the end of Psalm 2. You can look it up later. The end of Psalm 2 says, kiss the Son. What does that mean? 
It means make up with the son. Take advantage of his reconciliation. Take advantage of his forgiveness. And so they ask for this boldness to speak the word of God. And they also ask God in verse 30 to stretch out his hand and do signs and wonders to make the world wake up. Now you probably know, I'm sure you do, that for many years the church has been divided uh, about whether signs and wonders are still the means that God uses to get the world's attention. I'm sure you know that. I want to remind you this morning that signs and wonders, the miracles that we find in Scripture, are mainly concentrated around four different places in the Bible. Uh, the first was the time of Moses and the giving of the law. The second was the time of Elijah and Elisha and the ministry of the prophets. The third was the, the time of Jesus, the coming of God's Son into the world. And the fourth was the time of the apostles with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. There are significant numbers of miracles at each of those four stages in the Bible story. There's very little, actually, outside that. Yes, there are one or two here and there, but not many. And that's, you see, because the purpose of miracles was to indicate that God was beginning a new work. And I suggest that the signs and wonders performed by the apostles fit into that particular framework. Because God did signs and wonders through them to indicate that he had begun a new work through the spirit-empowered witness of the apostles. They were eyewitnesses to the life and work of Jesus. And as the Spirit came upon them and they testified to everything they'd seen and heard, God endorsed, he authenticated, he, he underwrote their ministry with signs and wonders. Now don't mishear me, I'm not saying for one moment that God can't do a sign or a wonder any time he chooses. Of course he can. He's God. But today, it is the ongoing work of the word preached in the power of the Holy Spirit that is God's primary way of working in the world. Now, the, the principle behind their prayer, I think, is very important for us this morning. Because today, there is a great deal of, of opposition to the gospel. You don't need me to tell you that. We were reminded of it yesterday when a number of us went out on the streets around here to do some street evangelism. There is great opposition to the gospel. We need boldness. We need to pray for that. Um, I don't know whether this is on your prayer list. I don't know whether you pray for this in your quiet time or in the one-to-one -one or in your small group. It is important, yes, to pray for our personal needs, but we all need to be praying that God would make us bold because we're living in times that require a bold church. 
We might not be facing the fires of persecution like earlier generations did, but we are facing, if I can put it this way, a spiritual ice age. In many parts of the world, including Cape Town, there is kind of this growing cooling against spiritual things. And here's the problem. Um, If the church cools at the same time as the rest of the world, no one is going to listen to us. So, here's a new thought for you for this coming week. We need to be praying for global warming, not against it. We need to be praying for global spiritual warming. We need to be praying for spiritual climate change. And we also need to pray that we would be courageous in the face of the spiritual ice age that's sweeping around the world. I'm sure you feel this, don't you? Don't you feel this in your place of work, in your families? Uh, I'm sure you've noticed that in those contexts and others too, the conversation is often desperately superficial. You know, no one is asking the big important questions. And they're not asking the big important questions actually because they don't know what it means to be truly human. And that is desperately, desperately sad. Because you see, you and I have been made with a mind and a heart and a unique ability to relate to God. But you see, if we don't ask the big questions and encourage our friends and family to engage with those big, important questions, all we'll be doing is contributing to the spiritual ice age. Isn't that right? So we need to ask for boldness. Scripture says there is a king. He's on the throne this morning. According to Psalm 2, his wrath is terrible, but his refuge is wonderful. And the experience of the early church in verse 31, which is the third thing to notice, is that when they'd finished praying, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Well, of course they did. Because that's what they'd prayed for. They asked God to enable them to speak his word with great boldness. And God gave them what they asked for. He answered their prayer. And the shaking, the shaking of the place where they were meeting, reminding us, of course, of what happened on Mount Sinai when God gave the law through Moses was a sign that God's power would be in that particular aspect of their ministry as they faithfully proclaimed God's word. So they didn't ask God to take away the opposition. That would be naive. And they didn't ask, you know, Lord, make us safe, because that's cowardly. No, they prayed for boldness in the circumstances. And friends, if you say this morning, well, that's too frightening a thing to pray, 
can I suggest you're underestimating the sovereign God? Because you and I have got to go straight to the top and we've got to say, Lord, since you have put us in this particular context, please equip us to deal with the context. Well, in the last couple of moments, I just want to introduce the next section, which which is that the early church had a concern that Christ's people should be cared for. Verse 32, just have a look at it. We're told that this crowd of early believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Now, we're going to say more about this next week, but I just want you to notice this morning that there is a link between the praying and the sharing. Because, you see, the praying says, Lord, I really want to do your will. And the sharing is saying, I really care about your people. And you cannot say to God in one breath, I really want to be yours, and not say at the same time, I also care about your people. See, a big heart for God and a big heart for God's people, those two things belong together. There's also, I think, an interesting link at the level of possessions. Uh, When a Christian says, it matters to me that people hear the gospel, if that statement is true, you will also hear them say, or at least behave in a way that says, my possessions do not matter to me now in the way they did before. You know, a person who's got (coughs) a real concern for the spiritual and eternal welfare of other people will find that their grip on material things is loosened. Now you see, again, that's the opposite of the world, isn't it? Think about it. The world says, grab as much stuff as you possibly can and don't waste your time worrying about the spiritual state of the people around you. That's what the world says. But God, through the gospel, says be very concerned about the spiritual state of the people around you. And at the same time, he loosens our grip on material things. And uh, I want to suggest to you that it's, it's under the influence and example of the Lord Jesus that the church behaves like this. Because we remember, don't we, that Jesus prayed that he would have courage to suffer for the gospel. And he didn't only pray that he would have courage to suffer in the face of human opposition. That would have been bad enough. He prayed that he would have courage to suffer in the face of his father's punishment. And he went ahead with that. And the prayer was answered. And because, you see, the prayer was answered and the Father gave him the courage to take the punishment that your sin and my sin deserves, he's able to share, isn't he, the new life which you and I have taken hold of as Christian people, which is something that we, I dare say, appreciate to a degree today, but will appreciate infinitely more in a thousand years' time. Yes, we will. 
And all because Jesus was concerned to pray and to share what he had with us. In the early church, some of the believers seemed to be selling off surplus property, fields and houses and the, and the like. And they give the proceeds to the apostles so that it is distributed faithfully and, and carefully. And I find it very interesting that the, the miracle here is not simply that the early church was saying, we share everything. No, what they were actually saying, if you notice from the text, is we owe nothing. Verse 32, no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. It's the mark of the early church. They don't say, you can borrow my car, here's the car keys. They say, I don't actually own a car. So they pool what they have. This particular mark of the early church is not mandated for every church in every age. There are a number of other fellowship-building practices recorded throughout the book of Acts. We'll get to them in due course. And if you think about it, if all 5,000 new Christians sold their houses, their primary place of residence, where on earth were they going to go to sleep? So it's not an ongoing mandate for every Christian in every age, but it is an illustration of the work of the Lord Jesus in the early church as they gave themselves boldly to the work of the gospel and gave up some of their possessions, some of their wealth, to help those in need. Why is that? Well, it's because, of course, we owe to Jesus infinitely more than anything we can ever give away. Marvelously encouraging for us as a church fellowship to see Barnabas leading by example. Uh, we're told that he sold a field and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now think about that. What does that mean? It means he didn't give directly to those in need. He did his giving indirectly. He did it secretly, anonymously. Because he didn't want people saying, you know, wow, that Barnabas, he's just such a terrific guy. He didn't want people saying that. He wanted people to be saying, Jesus, you are just so generous and kind, and I love you. Thank you. So, as we finish this morning, the question we all need to be asking ourselves, especially me, is do we pass the Acts 4 test? And you're thinking, what on earth is the Acts 4 test? The Acts 4 test is, do I really want people to hear the gospel of Jesus? And do I really want to be set free from a love of material things? After all, I can't take them with me. So you might want to this week just check your prayers, see whether you really are concerned for people's salvation. Check your prayers and maybe just check your spending to see whether your grip on the world is loosening.
And of course, we give great thanks, don't we, to the one who did this wonderful work in the early church and who's able to do it for us as well. Because he's the one that we look to for help, isn't he? And of course, we'll say much more about that next Sunday morning. I hope you'll be here. Let's pray. Well, our gracious God, we do thank you for your work in the world to make a people more and more in the image of the Lord Jesus. And we do pray that you would cause us, who you have made new through the death and resurrection of Jesus, that you would cause us to share the same priorities as him and we ask it for his name's sake. Amen.